All right, so I'm going to start out, as I always do, just reading a little bit in the Bible. And we're going to talk just a little bit about the gospel. I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'm going to start in verse 1. It says, this is Paul speaking. He says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. I love this section of scripture. It is it's so good. Um, I really like at the beginning in verse 1 how he says, uh, I made known to you, and then he goes on and he says, the gospel which I preached. We're seeing two different things here. He's making known to them the gospel he's already preached. And so you go, what's he talking about here? He's already preached the gospel to them, and now he's coming back and he's making it known. <laughs> so I think what he's trying to say here is that the gospel is more than just a head knowledge, right? It's more than just understanding uh, and knowing and being able to recite the gospel. That's something much different than living it out. That's something much different than it being a part of you. We've talked about how that in Ephesians it says that you are in Christ to me, that's an amazing picture. It's, um, it's the idea of being submerged into like a body of water, into the ocean. You're submerged into Jesus, and everything changes. Your environment changes. The way you think changes. Everything changes, and I think that's what he's focusing in on here when he says, I make known to you the gospel which I've already preached to you. I think that's so cool that he's trying to, to show us there's more to it than just an idea in our minds. But it's something that's lived out. And he kind of reiterates that because he goes on and he talks in verse 2 about unless you believed in vain. And so what he's saying here is some, some people, it is a head knowledge. Some people have heard the gospel. They come to church. They give to the church. Um, it's the American way. It's the American thing to do, especially in Arkansas. If you're in the Bible Belt, I'm a Christian. <laughs> that's what so many people say, right? You're a Christian if you're born in the South. It's just uh, the American thing to do, right? Um, but some people only have a head knowledge, and they have believed in vain, as this is talking about. But he goes on and he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance. This is why that we start this study with the gospel. It is first importance. There's nothing that we learn in this class that is 
bigger than the gospel. There's nothing, there's no subject, there's no theology, there's no doctrine that you'll ever learn that is greater than the gospel. The gospel is of first importance. It's, the, it's how that we are saved and everything that we learn has to be birthed out of that, right? And then he goes on and he says, Christ died for our sins. That's the gospel. Our, he died, he came to the cross, he took on the nature of man, he lived a perfect and sinless life, and then he went to the cross for us. And he laid down his life willingly as a willing substitute for you and I he died, he was buried, and then on the third day he was raised, according to the scripture, and then he appeared. He was raised from the dead. It's so important that Jesus Christ raised from the dead. And he goes on and he talks about this later on, starting in verse 12, that if Jesus Christ hadn't raised from the dead, then we have no hope. And our hope is, our all of our religion is just a waste of time, basically is what he's saying. But it's a fact that Jesus raised from the dead, and he proves it. He goes through and he says he appeared to all these people. He even appeared to 500 people, and he says a lot of these people are still alive today, whenever this was written. But then he says some of them have fallen asleep, which is the idea of a Christian. Christian is never shown as being dead in Scripture, only people that are lost. We know that Whenever we're born into this world, we're really born dead. We're dead spiritually. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. Whenever Adam and Eve sinned, we were separated from God. We were born dead, and it, it had to take the Holy Spirit to come to bring us to life. And so all the Old Testament saints were looking forward to the Messiah. They were still saved by the Holy Spirit, though. It was still the Holy Spirit that saved them, even though they didn't understand everything yet. But they had a hope in the Messiah. Today, we're looking back on Christ. It's the same Holy Spirit that makes us alive. We're never dead. But dead people, people who are walking around today, <laughs> uh, who are not Christians, who are lost, are called dead. And not only that, but in the book of Revelation, it says that they experienced the second death. Whenever they go to hell, it's the second death. But for us who believe, we are truly alive, and that is by God's grace. And that's what he says here, that he was a bad guy. He's talking about how he's not fit to be an apostle. We can all relate to, to that. We can all relate to we're not fit to be a Christian at some point. It's an amazing thing that God saved any of us. And I think we can all look back on some of the things that we've done in our past and say, wow, you know, it's amazing that he had so much grace. As Paul says, his grace toward me did not prove vain. That's amazing. It's amazing. He says, but I labored even more than all of them, but not I. He says, but the grace of God with me. So he's given all the glory to God. He's saying, this is nothing that I can do outside of God. I can take no credit for this whatsoever. I mean, obviously, Paul was on the road to Damascus hating Christians. He didn't want to serve God. And the last thing he wanted to do was to serve Jesus Christ, right? That's who he was trying to kill. He was trying to kill anybody who worshipped Jesus and who appeared to him. <laughs> but Jesus Christ himself and says, Paul, you belong to me now. You're going to do my work. And, of course, what did he do? Oh, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, he did. And, oh boy, did he do his work, right? What an amazing, 
life that Paul lived because of the amazing grace that God poured out on Paul. So this is always what we want to start with is the gospel. It is the most important thing. Um, There's people that listen to this podcast um, in other countries. I always want to start out with the gospel. It's important for us because we should hear it every day. But it's important, too, because we're recording this and people are listening to it in other places. So we always want to start out with that. So now we're going to jump into the providence of God. And we're on page 135 in our study. 135, the providence of God. This is a fun topic. and uh, we're, We've gotten into some fun ones, but this one's pretty cool. Um, I'm going to read Romans 11:33. This starts us out. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So I got a first point here. It says, the understanding of God's providence has been largely lost today, which is a great tragedy. There was a time in this nation that the providence of God was well understood. A time before pragmatism, a time before lackadaisicalness of doctrine, a time when people had a better understanding of the sovereignty of God and how that he carries out his will. And this is really true. We even have a town called Providence, right? Providence, Rhode Island, right? So Providence was something that people were very familiar with in the early church. Today, when you start talking about the providence of God, many people have glaze over their eyes. They have no idea what you're talking about when you're talking about the providence of God. And so that's why that this is a pretty fun topic. I'm sure you guys know because I've brought it up a few times on what the providence of God is. But I do have a question here. If anybody wants to answer it, it says, what is the providence of God? Does anybody want to tackle that one? What is the providence of God? Just a quick little short summary. It's just his guidance of (laughs) Of things. God's plan through history. Good guidance. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Of, of the world, of the world, yeah, everything, all, everything. Of all of it, yeah, yeah, from the beginning. That's right. And it'll go to the end. That's right. To eternity. That's right. Which is always like now. There's so many people want to say, well, our country was not founded on any kind of thing having to do with faith, and I'm thinking, God still allowed this country to be founded. God put together the people that became the leaders of this country. That's right and put together all of our documents and what it says in there and that's why people want to get rid of them that's right (laughs) and oh do they want to get rid of them yeah you know you're right the word the word providence is our way of explaining god's sovereignty and it, it deals with this foreknowledge too is seen by us unfolded in time and in space um so I, I've explained it before in this class, as I see it kind of like a, a giant tidal wave 
but instead of making a mess of things, it's pushing things into place perfectly, right? It's unstoppable. It's a force that is pushing and driving everything into the right slots, into the right places, into the right things. That's the providence of God. I've got a quote here from Thomas Watson, who's an awesome Puritan. He's one of my favorite Puritans. He says, the providence of God is Regina Mundi, the queen and governess of the world. It is the eye that sees and the hand that turns all the wheels in the universe. God is not like an artificer who builds a house, then he leaves it, but he's like a pilot. He steers the ship of the whole creation. So in other words, his providence is, is this, is that he is piloting, he's steering the course of the world, of everything. And more than just in a large sense, but even down to the little fine details of each individual's life. Um, that's an absolute amazing thing. Now I've got a tougher question. And we're going to start splitting hairs. We're going to start splitting hairs here. What is the difference between providence and a miracle? Have you guys ever thought about this? This is a harder this is a hard one. There is a difference. There is a difference. Isn't it a miracle when it's from our perspective? Yeah. <laughs> it's something that, that we witness. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And sometimes providence isn't seen until it's unfolded in time and space and but miracles are too right? right so yeah i don't think that that's necessarily what divides the difference but a lot of people get these things mixed up they'll get providence and miracles mixed up and so in theology of course it's the providence it's the uh, providence it's the prerogative of a theologian to split hairs and that's what theologians love to do is to split hairs and so in this case I think splitting hairs is helpful because we want to get a understanding of what a miracle is according to defined from a theologian's perspective and it's much different than what is defined from a lot of the lay people a lot of people who just come to church um, and enjoy good teaching from the Bible so theologians have a much different understanding of what a miracle is. A much different. It's a very pinpointed, accurate definition. And so I've heard a lot of theologians um, be criticized because of um, people will say, well, you just don't believe in miracles. You know, you hear people say that all the time whenever you start hearing a theologian talk about a miracle, and that's because the person who said that doesn't understand what the theologian means when they use the word miracle. And so we're going to start splitting hairs a little bit. We're going to talk about the word miracle from a theological perspective, not from a layperson's perspective. So it's going to be a little more detailed. So the word miracle, I've got a, a point here. The word miracle today seems to have a very broad definition. It has become something that happens in everyday life, something ordinary rather than extraordinary um, and I'm sure you guys hear it all the time right people say the birth of a baby is a miracle people say that the conversion of a sinner is a miracle or even finding a parking place at Walmart is a miracle <laughs> I'm sure you guys hear that word overused 
all the time. And it's easy for us to get into using that same Christianese, right? Because we, we're prone to that Christianese. We hear other Christians say things and we go, oh, that sounds, that sounds right. And so we start using words like that. But we're going to get in and define this a little bit more. I've got a point on the next page, 136. It says, when a theologian refers to a miracle, it is something very specific and not broad like thought of today. It is something extraordinary, pointing to God in the view of many witnesses. That is the definition of a miracle from a theologian. Is it something extraordinary that points to God in the view of many witnesses? So in other words, it's not something that happens behind closed doors. It's not something that happens with only one or two people or three people but you're talking hundreds of people witnesses it, right? That would be a miracle. And that's why that a lot of people, when they say, well, when they hear a theologian or a preacher such as John MacArthur say that there are not miracles today, people start getting upset and worked up, but it's because they don't understand what that he means or what other theologians means when they're talking about miracles. So it isn't the healing of an arm wouldn't be a miracle, but growing a new arm, right? Growing a new arm would be a miracle. Um, and, it, and it would be growing a new arm in front of many witnesses. Um, so it's making something from nothing. It is causing forces of nature to act outside of their boundaries. And so that's the definition of a miracle from a theologian, okay? From somebody that, that holds to a very high and pinpoint accurate position what a miracle is. And so the reason, there's reasoning behind all these things and we're going to get into some of this as to why that it's pinpointed like this. Um, <clears throat> the next point says miracles in the Bible were always instant, verified, public, and pointing to God. And providence is God's will that is carried out sometimes supernaturally that may or not be instant, may not be public, may not be verified, but will still point to God, okay? So we can see some, some a little bit of distinction there, right? There's some distinction that, um, especially when you're dealing specifically with the definition of a miracle as seen by theologians and well-educated pastors. Now here's a tricky question, tricky question. And I, pr I should have said in the original the original manuscripts, but is the word miracle in the Bible? And when I say Bible, I mean original manuscripts. Do you guys know? The answer is no. The word miracle is not anywhere found in the original manuscripts of the Bible. So the word miracle was translated into English from three Greek words. And so these three Greek words, I'm not going to try to pronounce them, but I can define them, and they are signs, powers, and wonders. So you will find those three words. You will see signs, powers, and wonders. Of course, a lot of our um, English translations will use the word miracle. Some of them won't. Some of them will say signs, powers, or wonders, which is an accurate translation. And so, what were miracles for in Scripture? So we're going to we're going to say, what were these things? What were these signs, powers, and wonders, or what we call miracles? 
what were miracles for in Scripture? And this is where we're. This is why that we started splitting hairs because we're going to try to get to um, a good understanding of a theological position on miracles versus providence. Right. So does anybody know what were miracle, what were miracles for in Scripture? Point people to God. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It was to authenticate something, right? So, well, with Jesus, wasn't it like there was some? Not sure if it was scriptural, but there were certain signs that he would have to be able to do to be the Messiah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Certain types of healing and different. I can't remember all the different things, but there were things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we can see that the reason that Jesus did these things was to authenticate the fact that he is God, right? And so that's one of the things that miracles were for, is to authenticate someone or a, spur- or a spokesperson for God. In the case of Jesus, to authenticate the incarnation of Christ as God, right? So this is the reason miracles were far and few in between in Scripture. And it seems sometimes when we read Scripture, it seems like there's a lot of miracles, but there really isn't. When you start really looking at Scripture, there were certain times that they were really heavily poured out, and then there was hundreds of years between um, these miracles in Scripture. And so the first question says, we see the first mass of miracles with Moses. This is the first mass of miracles that we see in the Bible, is with Moses. Why? To give him the authority as a spokesperson for God. Yes. For Pharaoh. That's right. It was authentication, right? To show the people and Pharaoh that this is a true prophet from God. And God himself poured out these miracles. And they, when I say miracles, they were ugly ones, right? Because <laughs> sometimes miracles can be tragic, right? Tragedies. Yeah. Some of these miracles were, uh, were tragic. But it was all to show that this man, Moses, is standing before the people. He is the spokesperson for God. You better listen to him, right? So that's what this is about. And then we see the second mass of miracles. Does anybody know? With Elijah, right? With Elijah. We see the second, second mass of miracles with Elijah. Why? We can say the same thing, right? To authenticate the prophets. So with Moses, we're authenticating a spokesperson who's bringing the law. And with Elijah, we see a spokesperson who is really the one that we see as the forerunner of the prophets. He's the one that... Um, that everybody thinks about, really, when you think of prophets of the Old Testament. Even the Jews set a table, uh, set an empty chair at the table, waiting for Elijah to show up. That's part of their Seder meal. Um, because he is the, 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 the spokesperson, or the, the person that is authenticated at, to the, as the prophets of God. So, now there's smaller miracles sprinkled throughout that displays God's power and protection over his people, but there are no major groups of miracles until Christ. 
after these two major outpourings with Moses and Elijah, which authenticates what? And that is that Jesus is God, right? And that he is the person that has come, um, and he's the one that, uh, that God, he's God himself, God incarnate, that came to save the people. And so that's why that there is another outpouring of miracles when Jesus comes on scene. And there really wasn't any, anything between other than small things with God protecting his people. Um, and so... So your, your separation of, of the terminology, and I was thinking about that, when you go back to the line of Christ through time, um, the circumstances that all these people were in, um, those were actually providence and not miracles. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Is that what we're, we're talking about? That's right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's right. It was the providence of God that that red thread that you can follow right. of the lineage of Christ. Uh, I like. I heard a pastor one time say it was like a like a one of those ocean ship ropes. You know, they're a big old rope, but there's one little red thread that runs through it, and you could trace it all the way up. That's the lineage of Christ. You know, and I, I like that. That was a good definition of that. I thought, but yeah, that's the providence. That whole rope. All the strands are the providence of God working together. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I was in a car accident when I was 16. I always thought it was a miracle, but maybe it's just providence. Cause, but I did define yeah. uh, or defy science because I was in a convertible and I literally like went into the ditch and was thrown out of the car, but literally I was sitting on the bank afterward with no impact of any kind. So... It was obviously a miracle because science says you have to fly forward when you're flying out of a car, but I just instantly was sitting looking at the car, you know, tipping up and then going down. Mm -hmm. So, and then when I got home, I was like, I mean, I had nothing. I had no, I had no evidence that anything happened at all. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking, so that's providence, not a miracle. Yeah. Because there's a miracle to me. I know, I know. <laughs> I know a, a theologian would would say yes. That's a, that was providence of God, um, and so. But yeah, yeah, that that kind of stuff is really cool. It's really cool. I think we all have stories like that that we could share. Um, probably many stories like that we could share, where we could see God's providence working. And at the time, I also would said, "Oh, these things were miracles." But when some I really some of them are really hard because when you were talking about the smaller ones, I was thinking about. Daniel in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Mm -hmm. Were that was that a miracle or was that providence? Because because of them being in the situation to be put in there and to mm -hmm. survive that, then they went on yep. and and obeyed God through their lives. Yeah, that's right. So that was a miracle. That's one of the small ones I was talking about. Right. Because that was God's protection over his prophets or over his people that were writing the scriptures. Right. Because you so, yeah. burn in fire. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Normal. When all the guys that throw you in die and you don't. Yeah. But a lot of theologians, you know, I've heard, a, I've listened to a lot of this, and a lot of theologians would say even Lazarus coming forth from the grave was not a miracle because it wasn't witnessed by a crowd of people. 
But where you could see with Daniel and with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it was witnessed by a lot of people. So they would say, yeah, that was a miracle. And so there's, they get really splitting hairs on some of this stuff, and which I think is kind of helpful to, to help us to understand the difference between a miracle and providence, because it is kind of confusing sometimes. Um, I've got a question that says, what did the miracles that the apostles performed authenticate? Of course, that's more of a rhetorical question here because we've been seeing again and again and again that um, that it, it was for authentic, authentication, right? And so they, the apostles worked miracles. There is no doubt about that. And so this showed that, they're, that they were true apostles and um, that they're ones that were authorized to write the New Testament. Um, when you have, you got to think that there was many people running around during that time calling themselves prophets. There was many false teachers, just like there are today. There's people running around. Um, we, we're familiar with uh, si uh, Simon, right? Or, yeah, the sorcerer that had people convinced that he was performing miracles. And so you say, well, what, how can I tell, distinguish a prophet of God from a false prophet? Well, they're the ones that's doing the real miracles. That, so the real miracles that we can see that the apostles were doing was to authenticate these are the men that you listen to, not guys like Simon, right, or these other false prophets that are running around. That are running around. And so that's why that the um, apostles were able to do these miracles because they were the spokespersons, spokespeople for God, but they also were the New Testament writers. And so I've got a point here. It says, with this definition, we see that miracles as defined do not happen today and have not happened since the last apostle died. What is truly providence is confused with miracles. Now, I do have a, um, a tag to put to this, so that's not the end of what I'm talking about. Because the next question says, will there be what we call miracles in the future? And the answer is yes. There will be miracles in the future. Uh, we can see this in the book of Revelation. So in the book of Revelation, we can say that these are truly miracles. They're, again, tragic miracles like we saw with Moses. But we're seeing outpourings of God that's witnessed by large groups of people that are apparently 100% supernatural. We're seeing things from the two witnesses that's coming on scene. They're doing things that would be considered miracles because they are the spokespersons of God right at the time during the tribulation period and all of this is pointing to the authentication of something and that is the return of Christ right Jesus Christ coming back uh, so all the miracles that we see happening in Revelation are pointing to that to authenticate that 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 God riding back on that white horse <laughs> with all of his saints that's God, all right? Because you remember, whenever the first seals broken in Revelation, we had a rider coming on a white horse, but it wasn't Jesus, right? It's the Antichrist. So <clears throat> that's why that um, that these miracles are pointing to Jesus that we see in the future. And so, so now, what you're saying though, when you're saying there's no miracles happening now. Um, from a from a theological, I'm saying so from a theological. So what about like when there's a massive tornado going on and people survive it, which looks impossible. 
yeah. and many people see this, and many people at that point understand that God saved them. Yeah. A lot of people don't, though. They think it's global warming and such. I mean, they don't really even, they don't even really acknowledge, like, yeah. why didn't hundreds of people die? You know, people, that's not what people think. They're just like, whew, that was good, but we didn't, but the global warming, we better stop yeah. feeding cows, whatever, so that they don't have gas or whatever. I mean, it's yeah. so Well, there is a segment of people that think that, but, yeah. but. Maybe the people that witnessed that were in it, but you never hear people talking about that's a miracle that more mm. people weren't dead. I mean, really. I well, when I was that. in Florida when we had the Category 5, oh, yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying when you're in it. The people that are in it and it happened to them, but the rest of the world that's watching it and seeing well, it. Well, they only see it for like five minutes. Yeah. And yeah. And it's They're over. not really saying, well, that's really miraculous that there was a, not yeah. a lot more deaths. That's what I always say. when yeah. I. They're like, only five people died? Are you kidding me? <laughs> that's what I say. Yeah, with the 20-foot storm surge. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. So we're get, so get back getting back to the splitting hairs thing. One of the we go to what is the purpose for a miracle according to a theologian. According to a theologian, the purpose of a miracle is to authenticate a spokesperson for God, which would be a prophet, Jesus Christ himself, or an apostle. And so the the technical definition of a miracle from from that perspective, from um, a very theological splitting hairs um, perspective, is it would have to be authenticating a person, and that's why the people. That's why I'm, that we saw Moses authenticated. We saw Elijah authenticated. We saw Christ authenticated. We saw the apostles authenticated, and then we're going to see Jesus Christ authenticated with the second coming with the Book of Revelation. So that is what um, a highly educated pastor. The use of miracles is for. Yes. The purpose of a miracle. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. we're we're splitting hairs so we can understand that in theology we would say that a tornado would be providence, right? Mm -hmm. That all these people, um, because it's not authenticating. It, there's not a man standing in the tornado, you know okay. that, and and it's authenticating. Except this if guy. it misses the church. <laughs> okay. yeah. And yeah. some of them do. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. So, you know, it's good to kind of split hairs and get a good yeah. idea. That way, when we we hear guys um, say what I said, because we're we're used to that word miracle. That's something that's become a part of our language. And when we hear um, a famous pastor or theologian say there are no miracles today, we go. But if you understand what they're talking right. about, it's not so, you don't have that reaction, right? You go, oh, I know what they're talking about. They're talking about there's not a spokesperson for God that this is authenticating. So what really this is providence that they're talking about. And of course, providence is supernatural as well, right? It's something that's God moving things into position and sometimes that is supernatural, you know? And so that's something that... It's pretty cool. That's why that this is a cool thing to think about and talk about because sometimes it goes against what we've heard and what we've learned and, and all these things. But um, but when you get to somebody that's highly educated, this is what you're going to hear. So um, I got a point here. It says now that, that we understand the technical def definition of the word miracle, let's get back to providence. So 
I've got a quote here. Um, I pulled it out of Beaky and Smalley, uh, Reform Systematic Theology, Volume 1. And it says, In providence, the God who decreed all things for his glory in Christ executes his decree in history by his preserve. Uh, sorry, can, my glasses are starting to mess up. Preservation and control of all his creatures and by concurrent with all their actions so that all his purposes are accomplished. And so I think that was a good definition. I think that was good. That all of his purposes are accomplished and that he's executing these decrees. We talked about the decrees of God and how that God decrees things and he ordains things. I like to use the word ordain more than I do decree. But, um, again, I'm splitting hairs, but um, it's how that he ordains these things and he sees them play out. He sees his purposes accomplished. So in Genesis 22, 7-8, Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. This is providence, right? It's not a miracle, it's providence. God provided a lamb. You remember that the lamb was caught in the, in the thicket. Um, it wasn't really God's will for Isaac to die, but it was simply pointing to Jesus and how that Jesus would take the knife. He would uh, allow the father to 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 wipe him out, and place all of the sins of all of all of his children upon the shoulders of his son, and his son was going to be killed for it. And he was uh, so we see that this is all foreshadowing. It was God's providence pointing to Jesus Christ, but it was also a providence even in the little details of the lamb being provided that they didn't even bring up there, which was pretty cool. He knew. He knew that God was going to provide a lamb. And he did. <laughs> That's cool. And so I've got a few little um, sections I'll pull out. Up a minute yeah, yeah. This because people always look at providence as being a positive thing. And when I look think about providence and what you read, it brings me back to thinking about the martyrs. Yeah. God has a plan for your life the Christians in the Colosseum. Um, we need to understand that's providence too. Yeah. Because in our society and throughout the world, we keep thinking, well, if we're a believer, I'm going to have a good life and blah, blah, blah. And that's not providence. Providence is whatever God has planned for you, He's going to carry out. That's right. And so that's, yeah. It's the opposite, almost, to me, of the prosperity gospel. Yeah, because the prosperity gospel thinks that God's going to, he, he's going he's to gonna work gonna, everything out to right. prosper you. For your good, for not your for good, his Not for will. his good. Right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And ultimately, we would say, even death is for my good, too, because True. he's working everything out for my good. It doesn't look good at the time. <laughs> It doesn't look. It didn't look good to Polycarp when he was dragged before the Colosseum and burned at the stake, right? But um, but this was something that 
we we're still reading about today and are inspired by. And there was many generations of Christians that were inspired by the death of Polycarp and many of the other church fathers that died in the Colosseum, as you brought mm-hmm. up. So yeah, absolutely. I guarantee you Polycarp's not sitting around today, 2,000 years later, going, God, I'm still mad at you. Let me burn. <laughs> you know? No. Uh, when you read his words that he said as he was being burned at the stake, it, yeah. it, it causes me to, I can hardly read it without crying. Almost every time I read or go over the story of Polycarp, I almost break down because it's so, so powerful. But it's because God was using that um, even for us to, to be inspired by. So I've got a little bit more stuff that I pulled out, uh, talking dealing with the providence of God. The first is from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. We've went over some of the stuff from the Westminster. It's not something that Baptists typically hold to. I, I personally like the Westminster. It's pretty much the same as the London Baptist Confession of Faith, uh, other than they changed uh, with the London Baptist Conf- uh, Confession of Faith, they changed infant baptism with believer's baptism, and they changed up the church government. But other than that, they're pretty much identical. But the Westminster was written first. But So I've got, um, I've got a copy of it. I think I brought it up here once. But um, I've got one quote out of it, and of course this is broken down into questions and answers. Um, and then we brought up the catechism earlier this today, I think. And so right here's a catechism from the Westminster. So the question is, how does God execute his decrees? And the answer is, God executes his decrees in the works of creation and providence. So that all falls back to what we've been talking about. How that he ordains these things, he decrees these things, and they are acted out by creation and through providence. And so, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, it said the same format, question, what do, you, what do you understand by the providence of God? Answer, the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth, and all creatures, and so rules them with leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruit and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. I like that one. I like that one even better, because this is getting us thinking of a bigger picture. Now we're dealing with more than just the details of our lives that we've talked about, but we're talking about all of the universe. We're talking about even... Um, the heavenly host, we're talking about the angels, <laughs> we're talking about even the demons and Satan, we're talking about everything. This is God's providence, right? Is how that he is, is, um, is steering these things, right? And so uh, I like how this kind of expands this idea of God's providence. We've got a quote, who wants to read this quote? Um, from William Pimble. Any volunteers to read real quick? Providence is an external and temporal action of God, whereby he preserveth, governeth, and disposeth all and singular things which are and are done, both the creatures and the 
faculties and the actions of the creatures, and directeth them both to the mediate to to the mediate ends, and to the last end of all, after a set and determinate manner, according to the most free decree and counsel of his own will, that himself in all things may be glorified. Mm, that goes back to what we were talking about earlier, right? That he's glorified through all these things. He's glorified through his providence. And he's going to be glorified. We are glorifying him as Christians. We understand that. I was talking to the youth Wednesday night and told them, I was like, look, even the lost is going to glorify God ultimately. Um, ultimately, they will glorify God as being the justifier. Um, it's a tragedy. It's a sad thing that we don't like to think about. But they will bow a knee to God just as, as everyone, everyone is going to bow a knee to God, and he will be glorified in the end. Um, so I was reading something, I'm not sure where, in the last day, about the creation and about all of the animals that God has made that um, eat all of the dead stuff, like the vultures and certain different things like that, and how he has made them because that preserves the rest of the life around. Yeah. And we don't think that they have a value, but God has made them for a purpose. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know? We don't think about mm -hmm. you know, certain kinds of insects and mm -hmm. things that eat the leftovers of everything else and eat the roadkill and Yeah. But Those... God has made them and they they are sustained by that and they are protecting the environment. Yeah, that's right. I thought that was very strange. <laughs> yeah. We should think about that this summer when we're chasing flies around with fly swats in each hand, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for and sure. His, crea his creation is just incredible for all the different levels of purposes that it has. Mm-hmm. It is. It truly is magnificent. Yeah. It truly is. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. You know, a lot of people miss that word causes. when they, A lot of people, they quote this because they've memorized it, but they forgot to memorize that word causes. All right? God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. So Paul here is absolutely sure that God causes all things good. God causes all things good. Next point here says, we have already mentioned the wrong view of God called deism, which is the idea that God sits back uninvolved and watches to see what happens to his creation. This idea spreads to the minds of the secular world in believing that all things happened by fixed natural causes or by chance. We've already covered the reality that chance is nothing and has no being, therefore it can have no power to act or do anything whatsoever. Romans 8:28 expresses the providence of God over all things. Over all things. And if you guys remember back, we have been 
building on this study, right? We, we add a little more information to it, and we've talked about the idea of deism. We've talked about the idea that chance, people say, oh, you know, the universe was just, you know, thrown into existence by chance. Well, then chance has to have being to it. Chance has no being to it. Chance is nothing but a mathematical calculation. It has no being. There's not a, a being out there called chance, right? Mm -hmm. But a lot of people say that, and they say some of the silliest things that I think they don't think through very well. <laughs> they don't take things to their logical conclusion, um, which is a problem. Romans 8, 29, 31 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many believer, or many, many brethren, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified, what then shall we say to these things? And I underlined that. What shall we say to these things? So Paul had the same reaction during uh, people. People had the same reaction during Paul's days as they do today. People don't like it. People don't like that God causes, ordains, and controls everything. And this is why that he wrote chapter. Or he wrote 31, verse 31, where he says, What then shall we say to these things? And he goes on, he says, If God is for us, who is against us, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for, for us all, how? Uh, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies, who is the one who condemns. Jesus Christ is who is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, who will who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written? For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And so I think this is just showing how that Paul just really understood the providence of God. He really understood that... God's going to work all these things out. He's working things out for our good. He goes on and he says, you know, you, you may not like it, basically, but what should we say to these things? Um, and then he goes on and talks about how that um, even Jesus Christ dying on the cross was according to God's providence and God's purposes. He was doing these things for a reason. There was a purpose to them. And that was so that we could be justified before God. Um, and then he goes on and talks about how that in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. There's so, there's so much rich, so many rich verses, so much rich information that's in, this, in these short little 
section of scripture that I wish we could really get into, but you can just see how that it's full of the providence of God. It's in, entirely filled with the providence of God. Well, um, I think where we get hung up is when it, when it talks about for good, we think it's what we look at as good. Yeah. And this is where we get into it with God. <laughs> yeah. Or people that horrible things happen to them, like, you know, somebody was murdered or whatnot. How can that be good? You know what I'm saying? It's like people get hung up on those kinds of yeah. things. Mm -hmm. Lots of things. I mean, this is a fallen world. It's yeah. There's bad things that happen constantly. Yeah. And if if you think that um, <coughs> everything that's that happens is going to look good to you, you're on the wrong planet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wednesday night. We, <laughs> last Wednesday night we talked about how um, why that God uses suffering and how that there's always two reactions. There's one of two reactions to suffering bad things happening. One is a reaction from the believer and one is the reaction to the world. Um, the believer learns from things. They go back and they look back on things that they've gone through that was hard, that was tragic, suffering or whatever, and they can see that there, that God was working through these things and that through this thing um, now we have been given assurance of, of our salvation because He held us fast, He held us tight, mm -hmm. He never let us go through these things. We can look back and we can say, you know what? This solidifies my faith. I do belong to Jesus. Um, it's something that gives us assurance of salvation and also something that equips us to be able to help people who's going through the thing that we've just faced, the thing that we can understand better than anybody else because we faced that. And so we can sit down and we can help them through these things. So God's using these things. And that's a response from a Christian. The other reaction is from the world. When tragic things happen, they blame God, right? They turn, they hate Him even more. Mm -hmm. They raise their fist to Him. They walk away. They curse Him. Um, and these are two t totally opposite uh, reactions to, to tragedy. But it's something that we can look at and we can understand, even though we may not understand providence. Um, but it's helpful when we do. We can look and we can say, you know what? I trust in God and I know He's good. And I know he's working things out. We may not understand we're talking about providence. A lot of people don't when they say that. But that's what it is. It's talking about the providence of God and how he's doing these things. And we trust in him. So, yeah. It's probably about as far as we can get tonight. Unless you guys have any other thoughts or questions. I guess this will be a two-week, probably two-week chapter. Oh, we'll get through the, through the rest of this pretty quick. We'll probably get through this and then jump over into the justice of God. We only have this, this much left. We've come this far. So, yeah, we're doing good. We're doing good. We're getting close. Well, I'm doing um, cards for this ministry called But you write Christmas notes to prisoners so after doing some of this studying it's when I'm writing to them <laughs> some of the things I'm saying is some of the things about I hope God will grant you a new year and he will give you the he will give you the gift of salvation um, when you go through troubles it's time for you to turn to him yeah stuff like that that is 
not what they're gonna necessarily want to hear, but it's true. And they're there, and I says, I hope you're doing the best you can with your circumstances, but God still loves you, and you know, so anyway. Yeah. Writing all those things to prisoners really makes you think about God's providence and what's going on in their lives, you know. Yeah, yeah, because so. he saves a lot of them. He a does, them. I tell you. There's more people getting saved in jail than, than <laughs> get out of jail. Yeah, so. that's the way God likes to work, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Just like the thief on the cross thing. Yeah. Yeah, it truly is amazing. <laughs> it is. All right. Is there anything that we need to be praying about this week? I don't know what.